श्रीलंका and mm-hmm. uh, we also have a uh, sort of many writings from the diasporic context so it's it's quite diverse and yes. uh, in terms of how we went about it uh, yeah i obviously had to do quite a bit of uh, reading <laughs> of the recent science fiction that has begun to appear mostly it has appeared in the form of novels uh, the mm-hmm. genre is flourishing now with publishers becoming more accepting of science fiction novels uh, which are uh, beginning to appear but there are also uh, some fora internationally mainly uh, based like uh, say strange horizons clark's world and uh, mithila review which is actually started by salik shah uh, mm-hmm. so these fora have actually allowed for uh, new voices 
to find uh, a sort of way of, uh, you know, find, well, reaching out to an audience. And so that actually is, is my task to a certain extent, because I could locate some of these uh, significant new voices even I hadn't heard of, besides the well-known figures like, for example, my uh, sort of, I would call her almost a co-editor, Manjula Padmanabhan, <laughs> who's a very important figure in the history of the genre and uh, who has also contributed, as you've seen, uh, graphic yes. prefix, uh, forward or graphic go forward to the volume. So she has been part of the team right from the outset and provided tremendous support and her suggestions are always invaluable. So besides Manjula, besides Vandana Singh, Anil Menon from Pakistan, Usman Malik, from Sri Lanka, Yudhanjaya, Vijayaratne and others, we also managed to uh, reach out to some of the younger writers. So uh, the emphasis is always on quality of writing. And yes, the thematic uh, link to the, obviously the, the, the main focus of the volume, but this time we didn't wish to narrow it down to say a very strict definition of science fiction, because that can also be too limiting. Uh, science fiction, of course, uh, mainly focuses on science and technology and their effects on humanity. Uh, mm. But uh, it also is a more all-encompassing, uh, perhaps, term when one thinks of, say, allied terms like speculative fiction. Yes. Um, so science fiction and speculative fiction have been uh, linked. Insofar as speculative fiction actually also allows for horror, high-concept fantasy also to be brought into the ambit of the discussion. And I think that's only, in, well, it's only to be expected because all genres, they're sort of imposed definitions by critics. <laughs> and so the writers, they will do their thing and they often cross boundaries and boundaries actually become very permeable and flexible. So that's what we, again, that was a pleasant discovery this time to see how the uh, redefinition as it were of the genre has taken place in our regional context like us. Hmm. And I found like, I, I guess the first story, uh, his lordship, and, and now his lordship is laughing by Shiv Ramdas kind of fits more into the speculative thing. And I, it, it's a great That's... opening for this yeah. book, I thought, because it's, it's, it just catches you at once and you just, and he set it in, 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 in during the famine you know, uh, the Bengal famine. I mean, I'm telling you, but I found it a great story because, and I was going through it and thinking, well, this is not sci-fi, but it is also sci-fi. So let's talk about that, you know, and how he kind of melds everything. Like you said, it's speculative and it's horror, you know, and it's history and politics. And it's very relevant in many ways because, you know, of you know, the post-colonial state and, you know, all that. So I found it great uh, reading. So let's talk absolutely. about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so Shiv's story, yeah, as, a, as you say, great way to open. Uh, he, of course, has been recognized for this story with several awards. But apart from that, yeah, the thematic uh, sort of uh, focus on, as you say, the colonial setting, uh, but uh, a retelling, as it were, of the ancient mode of the horror tale, which has yes. probably been around for ages. You know, stories about Vedals, and, yes. Uh, in our context, we know about camp 
campfire settings yeah. where such old stories can be told and retold. So in a, in a way, it's reminiscent of that, but given a kind of uh, more sophisticated inflection, as you were, by recasting it in this kind of speculative vein, where uh, the sort of uh, questions relating to historicity come in, where there's a kind of uh, philosophical dimension, even a gender-based questioning, say, of structures of power, of patriarchy. So yes, absolutely. It has a kind of a very interesting and uh, non-hackneyed, if you like, yes. post-colonial flavor to it. So it was great to get that uh, contribution. And horror and SF, as you say, well, in SF, there's also this tradition of writing alternate histories. So alternate histories, which retell the past from a kind of... Uh, uh, shall we say, unexpected angle, like Philip K. Dick's famous uh, The uh, Man in the High Castle, which, mm. of course, is the story of World War II, as if the Nazis won it and the Japanese, yeah. uh, of course, uh, and the Nazis occupy uh, the United States. So it's one of those uh, great alternate history novels. Shivda Ramdas uh, perhaps doesn't stretch uh, his uh, scope as far as that. But yes, there's this uh, idea of a kind of retributive force being exercised using means of the occult and mm. say alternative forms of knowledge, which perhaps even science has not yet perhaps begun to have a clue about. So in a way, questioning even the very foundations, if you like, the epistemological basis for uh, knowledge systems, which uh, were being imposed at that time. So it's, it's a fascinating story from multiple uh, angles, mm. if you like. And also, I mean, talking about this, you know, uh, uh, going back to history and kind of being inspired or whatever, getting an idea from it. Even I found even, uh, you know, uh, The Zoo by Mohammed Zafar Iqbal. That was another one like that uh, with, yes. with with the Nazi experiment, since we were talking about Nazism, and you know, uh, yeah. the story, Philip K. Dick story book, you know, even that, and he makes a specific reference to it within the story as well, to uh, the Nazi experiments, to Mengele, uh, yes. you know, his um, genetic and his, his terrible experiments, and the zoo kind of plays on that. So that's fantastic. So let's talk about that, you know, and I, I liked how these real issues which we contend with right now, like, like genetics, which is, and, uh, you know, eugenics which are always with us and being presented in this way yes absolutely so Mohammed Zafar Iqbal is one of the two great writers really writing in Bangla from uh, Bangladesh more recently of course we have writers writing in English as well like Sans is the same but yes he's been writing for some time He's a teacher of physics in a college in uh, Dhaka and has done excellent work. And uh, we were fortunate to get this story translated by Arunava Sinha. And mm -hmm. fortunately, nominated by the author himself. And as you say, uh, this story is a kind of meditation on power and uh, the intricate links between power, if you like, and well, perhaps uh, modern science. So uh, there's a setting of an island where uh, a man who possesses, uh, well, he's a leader, he's a political, uh, politically powerful person. Uh, so he's been able to transport uh, people there for these very bizarre and macabre experiments. Uh, it rem it's reminiscent of Edgy Wells's classic novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, but yes. takes it in a slightly different direction. Uh, so he causes some of these people to be brought up uh, in a dark space so that uh, they uh, lack the capacity for sight. And he enjoys exercising his uh, 
untrammeled power, as it were, and, and molding their personalities, their, their mindsets, their psyche. The story is told from the vantage point of a journalist who he invites to see what he's done. I think that people who occupy positions of power often have that desire to project their power and what could be a better option than having a journalist along with you to uh, sort of go along with that. But he's, he's not that sort of journalist. He wishes to actually expose this man. Uh, but the irony is, of course, that along the way, he sort of gets sucked into the, as it were, workings of the local power structure, at least to a certain extent. Um, so that's the fascinating part about this. Coming back to your reference to the Nazis. So Joseph Mengele was the infamous angel of death. Who, yes. As he experimented with twins. Um, the, again, eugenics was a key aspect of the whole Nazi project of uh, purification of the race and the construction of a kind of super uh, Aryan uh, perfect race. So uh, he was, of course, one of those who sought to experiment with uh, what we would now call form of bioengineering and, yes. uh, and so in that sense yes using genetics uh, in the worst possible fashion so that's science which actually takes a turn for the evil and here although he's not a trained scientist the leader in question but one can see those little experiments as the antithesis to uh, say uh, the best side of science the your mm. utopian aspects of science science as a kind of uh, you know panacea for all modern ills. So it's actually showing us the regressive potential which can be built into uh, modern science in a strange way, especially if hijacked by figures who are emptied of any conception of the ethical. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that's why this story is so crucial because it actually brings up the question of the relationship between ethics and science. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I found, you know, if if we talk about like traditional, uh, uh, you know, like like when you think about traditional sci-fi, you think about space and, you know, other planets and things like that. And I found that uh, Gautam Bhatia's story, yeah, the list, the list, Gautam Bhatia's, the list kind of comes closer to that, though it has, uh, you know, it, I mean, it's quite fascinating, and it, but it operates in alternate worlds and, you know, spaceships and all those things, though there's a, a core of emo- human emotion, which is always, you know, which I'm sure will outlast whatever, uh, whichever planet we're on. And I guess that's that's the core of, of his story, right? So... So yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So Gautam, uh, as we know, is a prominent figure in science fiction circles. He's been an editor for Strange Horizons for a long while and has published uh, a novel to great critical acclaim, The Wall, which has been in the news re- recently. And its sequel, too, is. Yes, uh, the sequel's so, coming out. Yeah. About, yeah, be public. So he's therefore, uh, yeah, carved out his own space. Uh, and we were lucky to get this story, which, as you say, uh, it brings in the kind of uh, classic space opera kind of yes. dimension. So yes. that's where the outer space aspect comes in. And yes, it is a story about people in uh, uh, interstellar, uh, interstellar uh, zones uh, confronting, again, questions of uh, governance, questions of hierarchy, uh, questions of administration, of justice. Um, and uh, he's sort of able to bring this out very beautifully with this one concept, which was uh, particularly fascinating to me, this idea of sentencing people to off-worlding. Yes. So it's the ultimate form of exclusion. 
Yes. Uh, I've been sort of hearing a lot about the marginalized people, of course, in recent times and stateless citizens, but that's just restricted, say, to a one nation state. But just imagine if you're in a kind of uh, interplanetary setting and you're sentenced to off-worlding. So how radical a kind of sentence that might uh, be in terms of uh, denying you your uh, rights to even an existence in the familiar uh, sort of uh, ground which uh, you may have grown up uh, so it's a punishment for uh, the rebels, for those who raise their voice against the sort of dominant uh, powers, uh, the structures that be. So it's it's absolutely one of the uh, sort of stories which uh, takes over a kind of model, the space opera model. Well, it can be sometimes a bit uh, escapist in its early form. In fact, it even converged with imperial fantasies about colonization. Yes. Flash Gordon. <laughs> Yeah, Ash Gordon, yes, absolutely. <laughs> there was a masculinist thrust. So Gotham very neatly undoes some of those presuppositions and subverts the genre, as it were, while inhabiting it and brings in a kind of new perspective, which actually, I think, also reflects his training as a Supreme Court lawyer who is yes. sort of relentlessly fighting for justice in, <laughs> on a sort of uh, plane which is a little far removed from science fiction, the real world, the Supreme Court, <laughs> the jurisdictional question, the questions relating to ethics again it's it's quite fascinating what he is able to yes yes and it's like off-worlding is i was thinking the ultimate form of cancel culture you know? <laughs> <laughs> even, even more so yes absolutely yeah. because it's sort of sentencing you to a complete uh, denial of even access to say the air which you once breathed let alone yeah. resources and the rest of that yeah. yeah and the other story i found like really great was um, um, I think Bring Your Own Spoon by Shad Hussain. Yes. Yeah, yes. that was a great story. It's like that's the last story. I think you've kind of like bookended uh, <laughs> the collection with these two like really powerful ones. And I found that uh, Bring Your Own Spoon fantastic. You know, with its sort of uh, grungy feel. Yes, yes. Yes, Sadhu Sen is a very talented writer who's really coming into his own, uh, you know, in recent times. Uh, the Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday uh, was uh, brought out by Tor.com, which is one of the really prominent uh, SF fora in the United States. And before that, Gin City was Gin actually... Gin City, Gin City. Yeah, by, by, by Aleph. So, yes, he's really uh, achieving a great thing. And in his case, um, I think he's, he's able to blend, again, genres very effectively. That genre mixing, which critics speak of, a kind of hybridization of various form. So he's perhaps, perhaps, well, his, his work leans more towards fantasy and especially uh, earlier uh, sort of uh, works which one was uh, sort of referring to. But uh, one can also see the incorporation, if you like, of SF elements in a very, again, innovative way. Uh, yes. So how does he do that? His fascination is with Middle Eastern lore. So in particular, lore pertaining to jinns. Jinns. Jinn Kinology, if you like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's able to uh, harness that and uh, 
create characters, including jinns who wake up from their sleep after many years, as in the case of the Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday, which is actually, interestingly enough, said in Nepal, in Kathmandu. So here we have a jinn, again, who uh, sort of uh, joins forces with someone who belongs to the disenfranchised section of Dhaka society, and they set up a kind of what seems to be something like a restaurant, but is also a bit of a soup kitchen for yes. those who can't operate. So, in a way, creating a kind of a sense, a flavor, if you like, of what it experience might be for those uh, who are the down and outs of society. I mean, uh, those who don't belong to the uh, sort of, uh, well, uh, well-cushioned part of society. And he doesn't do this in a kind of didactic way. There's, there's a bit of humor. Uh, there's so many references to cuisine. Uh, it's it's a delightful story. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and yet he's also envisaging a very autocratic system, uh, kind of technocracy, which is a really a techno dystopia. Uh, so life for those belonging to such sections, the subaltern sections, if you like, in such a setting, how how tough it might get. In the Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday, he also weaves in elements of nano nanotechnology. So that's where the sort of SF dimension comes in a very uh, sort of sophisticated and interesting way. But it's always, as I said, blended with this very interesting uh, recourse to medieval uh, well, folklore and uh, forms of storytelling, which of course date back to the Arabian Nights and yes. maybe before that. So mm-hmm. very rich tradition yeah. and set of memories, historically speaking, to, to uh, re-invoke and, and redeploy uh, kind of contemporary or even futuristic setting as in this case. Mm. And Gautam Bhatia does that too with Jatayu, the fact of naming the captain Jatayu, you know, and oh, yeah. another set of, um, uh, you know, myths and uh, a very rich Sort of so uh, uh, that struck me that you know this about jinns and about you know this uh, maybe I don't know whether whether Western writers would feel so close to their I mean that might be a, a blanket statement to their mythologies you know to use it in exact in this sort of way like we like these writers have used jinns and references to epics which I, I mean I don't know I don't think uh, I, I'm not sure uh, without footnotes, a person who doesn't belong to this culture would understand it, you know? Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, but I think in today's context with, you know, uh, Google and uh, dictionaries, yeah. like a button, in a way, you know, that whole apparatus of footnotes becomes a bit redundant because people who are interested will yeah. search for that is true. That's true. Yeah. Get that elusive structure, which in a way is being uh, sort of painted uh, uh, for them. Um, but coming back to the difference between the West, I think in the Western context, uh, I mean, I'm reminded here of a uh, very interesting uh, definition of science fiction propounded by uh, Ray Bradbury. So he actually invokes the myth of Perseus. And as you recall, Perseus was asked to confront the Medusa, and she would, of course, she, well, she anyone who would look directly at her would turn to stone. Mm-hmm. So he was able to get a shield from Athena and Athena's shield was the mirror in which he was able to view the uh, Medusa before cutting off her head. <laughs> so it's a bit, that's a, uh, dark, the ending of the story. But the point which Bradbury makes is, and the analogy he draws is, he says the future is too grim for us to look at directly. Mm-hmm. So what we need is a kind of ricochet view and that shield provides that. It's the mirror 
you know, science fiction is that shield. It's like Athena's shield. It gives us the mirror through which to view the present, but through often enough a displaced setting. It may be a futuristic setting, as in Gotham's mm-hmm. tale. It may be a geographically distant setting, but essentially the technique is that of displacement and estrangement. And mythology is invoked in a reinscribed way in some of the better works of Western science fiction. It's always a risk, though, because then sometimes you can fall back on mythology in a kind of re- reductive way and or as a crutch. And then it becomes more like quiche, like what Stanislaw Lem describes as quiche, which is the degraded form of myth, you know, where Mm -hmm. it's just a myth uh, retold without any uh, thought being applied to it or any careful thinking. Um, We get a lot of that in India. It's a very popular genre of mythophany. (laughs) <laughs> so I've steered clear of mythology. You steered clear of that, I see. <laughs> yeah. So that's the that's the sort of let's say the the dark side of uh, well of uh, incorporation of uh, of mythics sort of tales and narrative narratives that it becomes like an iteration, uh, you know, without innovation, without any yes. to it at yes. all. And so, and that that's actually a separate separate genre actually now. I mean, it's yeah. it, it appeals to a lot of people for very obvious reasons, but and it's a that that's uh, that it's just it's gone off in on on its own trajectory, I guess. You know, exactly. it's something else, and this is something else. So another uh, genre altogether, which has kind of created itself, or you know, uh, yeah, and it's commercially very successful. It's very that's successful. The case that often enough, you know, there's not much you know, effort required in either writing it or reading it. So a a more interesting variant of that is the more, uh, shall we say, uh, intelligent, again, uh, reworkings of mythology that you find in a collection like Magical Women, which was done by Sukanya Venkatragvan, edited by Sukanya Venkatragvan. Yes, yes, I remember that one feminist or a woman's perspective. Yes, yes. This kind of new dimension brought to G as a result of uh, invoking figures like say Durga or Gallo. Yes. Recently, oh, like, that, that's, a, that's also a different uh, a different genre that's emerged uh, yes. with women writers and all these retellings of women's stories as well, which is uh, which is fascinating by itself again. Like all these uh, so I guess a lot of things are in the realm of science fiction, uh, not included in this collection, but Indra Pramit Das's Shirley Jackson award-winning story, Kali Now, is a yes. good example of what we're speaking of because it's like a cyberpunk story with a difference. Um, they create a kind of virtual Kali uh, figure um, and we have a sort of story in which she is uh, you know, attacked by the conservative trolls as you might imagine <laughs> like Ali might be because she's so striking and independent and then she strikes back so there's a cyber war and he describes it quite fascinatingly with a great knowledge of social media and you know what's afoot these days with all yes. these you know, battles taking place especially often enough you know cleavage is relating to gender and uh, community you know as so central to that in our context and yes. how our mindsets are getting sometimes the closing of the Indian mind one might yes. that, you know, completely you know shrunk almost into kind of binaries all the time so he opens yes. that up interesting way and again it's through the invocation a creative and intelligent re-inscription of my one yeah yeah 
I found it great that you've included the Jayanth Nadlikar story. You know, yeah, yeah. because Jayanth Nadlikar is one of those figures who's been around like and whose stories even, I mean, one read as a child, which is like a long time ago. And you know, his stories are fascinating and it was like nice to read this one. So talk about yes. that. Okay, sure. So Jayan Nalikar, of course, is a giant in a way yes. in Indian science fiction. My memories go back to college days when I remember going to hear him speak on the theme of Indian science fiction at the Saitya Academy. And believe me, the Saitya Academy was not an institution which was always very welcoming to this particular genre. I think it was always considered to be a, a kind of branch of children's literature. Yes, frivolous and, you know. Frivolous or diminished to a kind of pedagogic aid. It's yes. not for science popularization. It has that function, basically. Mm-hmm. But Jan Nalikar's case, you could not actually <laughs> classify him in that light very easily because yes. here is a man who's a, you know, a trained, uh, of course, physicist uh, who taught astrophysics for so many years, who worked at MIT under Fred Hoyle, one of the great science fiction novelists, and has begun writing uh, very sophisticated narratives, uh, often with a strong dimension of uh, science and advanced physics at that, not ordinary sort of yes. science. But yeah, so his his sort of uh, narratives often feature figures. It's very rare to find that I think in Indian uh, literature uh, who are scientists, scientists yes. by training. And obviously, he's drawing on his memories, his experience, and that's the kind of story we find here. I mean, it's a bit well. It's also an exciting story, an X Files style story yeah. about alien invasion and all the rest of that, and the attempt to counter it. But but it's also very much grounded in that sort of sense of yes uh, technical institutions the dynamics of uh, you know power within such institutions and the you know sort of also advances incremental advances made by science you know it's a very slow process sometimes scientific discovery what is interesting about Jayad Nalikar is I don't think he's ever invested in the hubris of science you know scientists especially after second world the second world war there was two kind of uh, directions, I think, that uh, uh, the scientists moved in. One was, you know, that sense of, oh, we, as I'm drawing here on insight taken from an interview with uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. So one was that, yes, we won the Second World War because of radar, because of rockets, and ultimately the atom bomb. So a kind of triumphalist view of science. Yes. You know, that- Going to reshape the world, and essentially, science is the way to go. The other, I think, a more skeptical view that the hubris is misplaced. Remember the terrible devastation the nuclear bomb, you know, could wreak, and it's not the only form of science that could actually uh, wreak such uh, devastation. Especially when coming back again to the, you know, sort of experience of Auschwitz or the concentration yes. camp, the use of uh, uh, kind of uh, instrumental rationality there. You know, a scientifically engineered mm, mm. form, a calculus uh, which was used to, uh, you know, exterminate an entire community, an entire uh, group. So there, uh, the sort of serious risks associated with science, I think, also came to. For us, my senses, and I'm here speculating here uh, out loud, as I guess what an editor should occasionally, uh, that Bhopal was our turning point, that a lot of our science-based uh, writing was a bit uh, along the lines of that uh, optimistic view that the wonders of science will ultimately rescue us from all our social ills. The scientific temper, Nehruvian, you know, dream. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
will prevail, but it hasn't, has it? In fact, we seem to be moving in a very different direction. But Bhopal was a kind of wake-up call in a very serious sort of way. So the 80s is when, and as a result also of the countercultural movements of the 60s, the environmental movements leading up to the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I think, well, though Nalikar has not been actively associated with, say, science uh, uh, um, movements as such, but in a way he's picked up, as any good writer does, uh, elements of those that questioning, that sort of self-questioning, that critical view, self-critical view. So yes, it was great to have the chance to include this story in translation uh, by uh, Arjuna Miratika, who is herself a writer of science fiction. So when a writer as a bit, yeah. you know, engages in translation, you get a bit more of the nuance, the, the sort of uh, complexity. And she also did this in consultation with Jayan Nalika, who's still around. Yes, still yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a researcher and Pune. So yeah. yes, she was able to be, remain in touch with it. So very, very good to have that slice of history. You know, it's not a new story. It's not yes. a new story, but it's good to have it. Yeah, what I found interesting actually about the story was how it is, it's clearly, I mean, I don't know, when you read it, you know that it's written in the past, right? Yeah. And, and so it, it it's written some, perhaps, I mean, I'm assuming it was written sometime in the 80s, late 80s, you know, and, and then when you're reading it, you have that sort of double vision kind of thing happening. You're thinking about how people thought about what, you know, what, what the future would be like. It's kind of like going to Chandigarh, you know, like the past vision of the future. It, oh, yeah. It's it, it kind of, it felt to me like that, and so it was it was very it was a rich piece to read because of how it makes you also think about many things, you know, from different angles. So it does. It, yes, indeed, absolutely. A sense of the history of science very much being almost sort of integral to that. You know, a moment when computerization yes. and the speeding up as it were the processing power of of the of the, of the computers was uh, reaching a kind of crucial state when uh, the digital moment was really just about appearing so yes, yes that sort of actually in its western avatar generated the whole genre of cyberpunk uh, yes. which of uh, came about uh, as a result of William Gibson viewing Blade Runner. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and then yes. Neuromancer, the response to Neuromancer, that. Neuromancer. Yeah. Our own, I think, uh, shall we say, practitioners of cyberpunk. Uh, Nadlikar couldn't be sort of seen in that light, but yeah. in his own sort of uh, way, a more sober, shall we say, perhaps even golden style, age style inflected uh, way, uh, he's just, he's telling a story of uh, it from an insider perspective as a scientist yes. who was there when it was all transpired. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So how, tell me, how did you select these stories, you know, and how many did you have to go through? Oh, so uh, actually my uh, task this time was, uh, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, made easier because we uh, mainly, uh, asked for new material. So in which case then it was like an invitation, you know, you send out this request and, and you ask them to send back a story along the lines of the concept note circulated. And um, we were also relying on, for the most part, uh, many of the writers who are already established, as I was saying earlier, that is where the research dimension maybe came in, where you actually had a sense of the prior uh, sort of uh, uh, established record of the uh, authors in question. In some cases, younger writers were un unpublished, 
uh, one took a chance. And yes, there were some, but we didn't ask for, this was not based on, uh, say, unsolicited material uh, for the most part, nor did we have a slush pile from which mm. we had to honor. Okay. Uh, lots so that was not my process. Um, since since one had been plugged into this network, and I would say this is a great thing about the contemporary SF scene and fantasy scene here in India, that uh, everyone really uh, sort of is in touch with one another. They're reading each other's work. They're keeping track. And um, it's not as if you know, these are isolated silos. Earlier, you know, some people used to speak of the SF scene here a bit like that, that there are five uh, authors and all <laughs> they're always quarreling with each other nobody speaks to them. but I think even that is a bit of an exaggeration uh, way back you know 80s 70s but not really it wasn't so bad but yeah now I think uh, people are also willing to go the extra mile to suggest names to uh, point one in a certain direction and then when it comes to translation I wish we had had the chance to uh, get more translations into the volume mm. more uh, in the case of the first volume but I think there's plenty of scope for volume three so in a way yes. we're reserving some space for that to <laughs> for volume come yeah and so the translation culture has to also keep pace with uh, what's happening at the level of the writing in English which as I've described is uh, what could be termed a kind of new wave of writing since the 90s this wave has emerged and I think it's sort of producing very distinctive new qualitatively very superior work and which actually uh, raises a whole host of questions which are pertinent to our time whether it pertains to the social media whether it pertains to surveillance whether it pertains to climate change um, bioengineering, as we were speaking of earlier, these these questions are of the moment. We cannot yes. deny. And living in the age of the pandemic, it's almost like we've been living through a science fiction novel for the last. Yeah, that's time. true. That is true. So, in effect, that genre, the the genre, sort of is and its boundary with reality is constantly being jostled and collapsed almost. And good writing, I think, should reflect that and should uh, you know demonstrate that capacity to both absorb and critically reflect on what's happening. And I think that, mm-hmm. that's the positive side of what we saw here. And I like how most of the writers are very politically engaged. Even the Sri Lankan, uh, which one was this? Yeah, was huh. Micro Memorial? That's right. Yes. It's, it's a great that's by Vajra Chandrasekhar, yes. So it's yeah. a remarkable story. As I uh, immediately uh, sensed when we got this uh, from him and in the first instance, because yes, yeah, we know that the civil war had very traumatic effects on Sri Lankan society, probably uh, across the board, you know, as, as, as such events tend to uh, ultimately uh, sort of uh, uh, be uh, in terms of... Uh, causing severe ramifications at the level of the mind and the psyche, denying even the capacity for mourning. Yeah. And uh, like what we saw during the partition of India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, yeah. of course, along the way a little later. So Sri Lanka has more recently gone through that, and also, though it didn't lead to an actual physical demarcation of territories. But yes, the scars, I think, remain. And this projection into the future, a future where warfare is still endemic, and where you actually have this programming of an intelligent uh, robot who's become a maker of uh, memorials, and memorials which are made as the event occurs, just in the immediate aftermath, say, of a battle. So that's a remarkable idea. And uh, I shouldn't give away the ending, of course, but the no, ending no, no. is... Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, the most brilliant aspect of the story because it's so ironic and self-reflexive about the very activity of making uh, such uh, memorial. Um, the way I saw it was it's it's more a reflection on that great thematic which was introduced in the wake of the First World War, or the endless war as it was then described by some. You know, Wilfred Owen's idea of the pity of war, you know, yes. rather than its glory. Yes. Yes, that famous poem. So it's not a celebration of that heroic no, no. dimension, yeah. warrior. Instead, it's actually entering into the space of mourning in this sort of uh, indirect way through a science fictional kind of metaphor, which is that metaphor of someone who's a maker of uh, memorials and memorials on the battlefield itself. So that just yes. it's just a, it blows your mind the idea. Yeah, and also the history, the history makers, the you know all that you know oh, uh, who are a bunch absolutely. of engineers and how the memorial maker looks down on them. And it was fascinating. That's a fascinating story. In fact, so, all the stories are like fascinating. You know, I found uh, and each of them kind of um, played on us a different theme in a sense. Yeah. So absolutely. So that's the kind of, yes, diversity which one hopes for, uh, not merely just in terms of cultural or geographical origin, but really in terms of choice of uh, subject or theme and the ability to play it out into a very interesting storyline. And ultimately, the test is in the effectiveness of the storytelling. And I think here we've got a very uh, fine combination of that kind of effective storytelling and intelligent choice of theme. Mm. Of Radar, in terms of not being known or even published much, perhaps, uh, she's a scholar, a teacher of literature, and has uh, tried her hand at science fiction uh, in recent times, a blogger. So this particular story was very moving for me because you yes. know, it evokes that very poignant history of the crossing across the Himalayas of the Tibetans. Yes. And of course, the 1959 moment of the arrival of the Dalai Lama, it's yes. etched in our collective memory. But yes. obviously, there's a specificity to what she's describing uh, in terms of this idea of people then constantly being forced to prove their identity and yes. how this might actually extend beyond just the question of the Tibetan community to us all. What if we all have Aadhaar chips implanted into us, if you like, yes, you know, so yes. surveillance sort of dimension to identity oh, markers. QR codes, QR codes. <laughs> Absolutely. So one is that day just around the corner. And then for, you know, groups in exile like the Tibetans, is does that would become an even more fraught uh, experience because then how do you each time uh, prove exactly uh, who you are, whether you have a right to belong, a right to access, uh, of course, all the resources uh, required for even living and existing in a new space like the space uh, in which you've been given sanctuary. So that vulnerability of the community, it's very beautifully captured, even though she doesn't necessarily name the names of the states in question or yes. invoke that explicitly. It's nicely uh, sort of, if you like, uh, uh, disguised in a science fiction sort of setting nonetheless very recognizable. So in that sense, it has the force of political, if you like, fiction without yes. the uh, sort of crudeness which one sometimes associates with, uh, yeah. say, you know, a work which uh, makes a sort of explicit uh, political point. It's it's subtle, it's nuanced. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yes. So, I mean, I could go on discussing all these stories because I find, found this a really good collection and I found it, you know, I found it very interesting to read and I'm still reading it and I liked how you've got, you know, writers from right across the subcontinent and, you know, 
like even Kekashan Khalid's almost human, you know. So you've yes. got Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, Indians, of course, all different sorts of Indians, Tibetans as well. So, you know, that this is a, I, I find it a really good collection and and I could keep discussing this, but of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm happy to hear that. It's such a pleasure to get this kind of uh, response because, yeah, your uh, sort of, uh, this was a two-year initiative and your uh, task as an editor, as someone who assembles and frames and ultimately showcases the material, which is also as a result, of course, of what the team at the publishing house does with the designer providing an excellent cover. Yeah, excellent cover. Outdone herself, yeah, yeah. And mm. uh, so, yes, with the help of Polomi Chatterjee and her team, and Manjula, of course, as I was saying, as a guiding light. So it's always, therefore, uh, very meaningful when one gets that kind of yeah, response. Yeah. That it worked out well in the end, yeah. Yeah, yeah even Manjula's <laughs> illustrations are great, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This idea of a graphic prefix, I think it's quite unique. We have graphic novels, we have comics, and uh, I think no one has yet tried their hand at a graphic prefix, which yeah. in a way sort of opens up each of the stories because she has created micro images which are linked to each yes. story, as you see, and which are numbered. <laughs> you can actually yeah. the effort to make the linkages on seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very yes. nice. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for talking to me. And for the, for the listeners, go out and get the Golan's book of South Asian science fiction, volume two, edited by Tarun K. Saint. It's um, with a graphic preface and a afterword by Manjula Padmanabhan. It's a great book. It's really interesting. It's got a real variety of stories and uh, stories that you can identify with and which you can enjoy, really. Uh, and that give you a sort of intellectual buzz as well. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you very much for the chance to uh, enter into this conversation. Okay, great. Bye. Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.